Remember that famous line from Forrest Gump? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. But with WNA Trailblazers, you do know you're going to get amazing stories from trailblazing women in business. And with Davies Chocolates, every handcrafted chocolate you bite will delight you. Davies Chocolates, proud sponsor of WNA Trailblazers podcast. Through my years, I've had people say to me that, oh, we're not for profit, we can't make money. And I've also had people who said to me, oh, we are not for profit, we can't be keeping money. We need to spend everything we make, which is not right. People forget that you need money to be sustainable. That's changemaker and former corporate and commercial lawyer, Alice Tay, who now uses her skills and knowledge to help businesses grow, organisations prosper and communities flourish. And this is WNA Trailblazers. Women's Network Australia. Amplifying the stories of women in business. Hosted by Women's Network Australia CEO Cheryl Gray and Louise Poole, managing partner of podcast production company and official Women's Network Australia media partner. Welcome, Change Media. How would you feel about ending a successful career after 30 years and turning your talents towards something new? Sounds pretty scary. But that's exactly what Alice Tay did after a successful career as a corporate and commercial lawyer at the end of 2018. She had a new vision, and that was to help businesses grow, organisations prosper, and communities flourish. And it's her innate ability to look at things from different perspectives that has seen her take her skills to non-executive directorships to help businesses and communities do their very best. So Cheryl, let's talk about trailblazer Alice Tay, who is pioneering conversations on boards around the country. Her commentary around housing and some of the dynamic discussions she is leading around the boardroom, around housing and decisions around housing, I think are really interesting. She's certainly no stranger to getting out there and getting change happening, is she? No. And of course, Alice and I spent some time on a trade mission in China and I got to know a little bit about Alice, but I also saw some of the cultural assumptions that we take for granted. And I really enjoyed that part of our conversation too. And that's probably in some ways where taking a different perspective by having a a different cultural background is so important. And I know it's important around a lot of boardroom tables these days where they are looking for diversity because it just makes for better decision making, but it also is more representative of this incredible world that we live in. Let's jump into that conversation with Alice Tay now. Well, welcome. Welcome, Alice, to WNA Trailblazers podcast. Thank you. A trailblazer. Wow. Well, you are a trailblazer and we'll get to your professional career shortly. But for those who don't know you, can you just tell us a bit about where you came from, where you grew up and what life is like as a young person? Ah, cool. Well, I'm Malaysian by birth and my parents sent me to Australia to finish high school and go to university. And the political situation situation in Malaysia at that time wasn't great. We had the great May 13 uprising and the thing with uh, middle income families was that they would send their children or at least one child overseas so that if we did have another uprising, the possibilities of uh, getting out of the country would have been much greater. And so I was uh, sent to, to Australia, to Sydney, have a lot of family here. And so it wasn't as if I 
was going to be amongst people I, I didn't know. So I came to Australia, did my HSC, went to law school, became a um, commercial lawyer and I left work at the end, I uh, left full-time legal sort of work uh, at the end of uh, 2018. So, so that was now, effectively 30 years in corporate yeah, and commercial law? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I that's, started. It's a fulsome career. It is and virtually all of it by a couple of years of one firm, which you don't which is, see that's nowadays. Pretty extraordinary. Pretty extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Did your family, but, did your immediate family come and join you? Did you have brothers and no. sisters in Malaysia? Yeah, yeah, sisters. No, no, not not at all. The life in Malaysia is quite different from the life here. And I think when it's almost like a, I wouldn't say it's like a shock, but it, it's different. Life here, if you were working, is a lot harder than it is in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. Um, in what ways? And, well, help. We There's always family around to look after your kids. We have uh, helpers to, to help us, you know, do housework, shopping, you know, all that sort of thing. Fit kids around. My sisters had drivers to drive their kids to school, extracurricular activities and the like. Mm. You know, even even things as basic as cleaning your house. Like when I first came to Australia and lived with my uncle and aunt in Valrose, Sydney, I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to clean the toilet. I didn't know how to vacuum <laughs> a floor. In fact, I don't even know how to cook really, but for COVID where you really had nothing else to do. And so you try to recreate dishes that uh, you add in your childhood, sometimes successfully, sometimes disastrously. So it's, um, a, it's an interesting life. background because uh, I was actually speaking to one of our WNA members recently who yeah. um, has recently moved to Australia. She grew up in South Africa and then spent time in Asia, in Hong Kong and Singapore. And that was a big culture shock for her too. She said, I I'm, I'm now here having to do all these things myself. And I didn't realize how much time they took. And that's exactly, I guess <laughs> when you, you've grown up in a culture and in an environment where you've always had help to do domestic chores, but you suddenly have to add that to the load of having a career. It is a quite a culture shock. It is. And the other thing also is that around Asia, you see that there are more women in senior positions. And I think uh, a reason for that is because they have helped back home. Mm-hmm. Makes a big difference when you don't have to, you know, rush home to cook dinner and the like. And I have to say that I have admiration, total admiration for people who work and then rush home to have dinner on the table by six, seven o'clock. I, I never do that. <laughs> I know your husband's a very good cook. <laughs> I have to eat whatever he cooks. It's <laughs> <laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tell me about your career in law. Yes, you, you spent a lot of time in the one firm, 30 years in practicing law and, and as a partner. Were the early days different to when you finally left the legal practice? It's hard to say because when you're in the practice, life just goes on. And I have had cause to reflect on my working life just recently. And one of the things I've um, I've come to realize that I have had a really charmed life, absolutely charmed. I don't know this, what do you call it? Um, I don't see racism. I don't see discrimination in my workplace. All I've ever had is really supportive partners all the way through. And, you know, speaking with other people, that is something really, really unusual. I, I and you, talk you about said racism. you didn't, you, you didn't see it or it didn't exist? I didn't 
didn't experience I didn't experience it okay I did yeah I didn't experience it. it the thought didn't even come into my mind that discriminated against because not only was I Chinese but I was a woman never never thought about it that way never saw it never felt it so you didn't experience any sort of racism or sexism but you're certainly aware that it, it has existed in that profession and in most professions in your in your working life you're you, I guess you can only comment not, on what you yourself yeah, experienced don't you yeah that's right not overtly I mean I I know of uh, bad behavior within the profession did I see it in my firm not really I wouldn't say I, I, I couldn't say it didn't exist because in the early days we did have some people whose behavior would not be tolerated today but it's really hard to say I mean my partners have always been firm partners have always been really really supportive and I've never felt that you know I couldn't do something because I was a woman or an Asian or anything like that and everyone was treated equally we were all paid really really well yeah and so when I, I sit back and and I and I hear about young lawyers talking about being discriminated against and having this glass ceiling that they have to face one part of me accepts that yes it happens and the other part of me wonder whether it happened because of the culture within the organization as in the partners mm-hmm. or whether the lawyer is just super sensitive about things yeah I guess it, obviously if there's a culture of any sort of bad behavior whether it's mm-hmm. behavior towards women or behavior towards people of different cultures then that can play out it's probably about creating the right culture where there's acceptance and, and diversity and acknowledgement of mm. the value of, of different points of view. Yeah. And certainly, you know, when, when you think about what life was like when I started practice 30 years ago and, and now, certainly things like values and behaviours and the like, that was never really discussed. You were all just good people. You all did your work and you were appreciated for doing the work. The fact that you worked ridiculous hours, which, you know, we, we joked towards the end of my career that it's only the older partners who are still in the office at 7, 8 o'clock at night because all the young ones have left by 5.30 to do gym and, and the like. You know, we that's what we did. <laughs> and and when we got mobile phones and the like, you were on call 24-7 and you accepted that. That was what life was like. The mm. thought that you would have work-life balance. You go, what is that? That's what life is. And I think that life is very, very different now. And people are much more mobile if you got a lawyer to stay for two, three years doing well as opposed to 30 years. Yeah. One of the, I think you did have a bit of a culture shock though when you did visit China and I guess there was an assumption. So you and I, for those who don't know, we met when you led an all-female trade delegation to China and it's coming up to four years ago now, Alice. I know it doesn't seem like it, but, but I know we had a conversation at the time where you were really like a tourist in China just as much as anyone else even though there was this assumption because you had Malaysian Chinese backgrounds that you knew what was going on and were much more culturally aware. I was absolutely a foreigner. Being an, an overseas uh, Chinese you, you have this this notion of what what we would call what we Southeast Asian Malaysian Chinese are called main, mainland China. We have this perception of mainland China. A lot of it I'm thinking came from our parents and grandparents that mm. it is a, um, a rundown 
country, a dirty country, and people was, if I can use the word savages, but they were not like us. We were the, the smart people who got away out of China, and a lot of it would have been in the early 1900s, thereabouts. And certainly when I when I went back, I was in China for the first time the year before we went, and that was the Shenzhen. And I was just astounded. I went to the high-tech fair, and I was just so astounded. And I was thinking, hey, you know, Australia is a first world country. But when you look at the technology that was being shown and used in that part of China, you could almost say we were a third world country. They were using things like QR codes and digital payments and the like way before we ever thought about it. Going to a, what do you call it, outdoor market where the menus were actually on QR codes on printed onto benches for five years. It's become something that's reasonably commonplace now post-COVID in Australia, but it was totally everything four years ago. Yeah. There was was no cash. Mm. Even our credit cards were looked at in sort of strange ways. Like, why would you use a credit card? Yeah, Yeah, you're right. It it was a a real eye-opener in terms of the adoption of technology, the use of technology. But I think something you also commented on at the time or subsequently was actually how green things were and the commitment to clean and green was was high on the agenda. Very much so. Very, very much so. And I um, I asked one of the women that we met in one of our many dinners and I, I asked her about uh, the use of uh, renewable energies. And I said that we had travel uh, in Beijing and Shenzhen and I haven't seen any like solar panels. And she just looked at me and she said, well, you won't see any solar panels in the middle of Sydney, would you? And I went, no, we won't <laughs> because that's not where they are. I, yeah, I no, think one of the, the real insights from that trip was don't judge a book by its cover. Don't believe everything you read and see because I think all of our perceptions of what China was like, even at that time, were really shaken up in some ways because we got to see things and experience things that even other business travellers didn't get to see and and that was with great thanks to yourself and the organisers of the trip. And one of those was an aged uh, care residence, which I think was a real shock and and I've always kept the memories of that in my mind as there's been a lot of consideration and debate in this country about how we treat our older people uh, and, you know, with the Aged Care Royal Commission and so forth. And the degree of care and the model of care that certainly we saw in China was very different. Yeah, very, very much so. And I think that comes down to culture also because the thought of our our parents going into a facility is just unheard of. Mm. Something that I, that my family is dealing with at the moment, an aunt that we have in her, in her 80s, in her mid 80s, and she lives in Singapore and she really has no one, like she doesn't have children to care for her. And mm. the thought of her going into, they call it a nursing home, you can't even talk about it. She won't have it. It's Mm -hmm. too shameful. And I think for people caring for these people, there's just that extra care because I I don't know whether you you could use the the word is something, you know, that people to be pitied because they don't have the family to look after them as um, they otherwise should have been. And so therefore you need to put in greater care. I I don't know. But but it's this respect for older people, which maybe our society doesn't have because we live such busy lives. Yeah, 
I think we could definitely do with a good dose of it. And hopefully some of the things that will come out of the Royal Commission and so forth is not just systemic changes in care, but perhaps the way we think about care and the way we think about how our older people are treated, because that was certainly on the show there. Yeah, yeah. And and I wonder whether this is something whereby you think of, you know, you should be thinking about care as as a right, as a human right, Mm. rather than as a profit-making enterprise. Mm. It's the same as it comes to housing. You know, we need to be thinking of housing as a human right and not a wealth creation tool. And that's a particularly controversial subject at the moment, isn't Very. it? Because the housing very, yeah. shortages and that approach to housing is very, very topical. And that's an interesting perspective that you put forward. How, how do we make that happen? Well, exactly. And I think it's going to take us generations to think that way. Because when you think about the wealth in Australia, the wealth is not in uh, in companies. The wealth is in land. Now, why is it so expensive? Yeah, you know, you, you know, the clothes that we buy, the food that we eat is because of the huge rentals and the huge value in land. So I don't know the answer to that. One of the things you are doing, though, although you've retired from the legal profession, you are using, I'm sure, both your legal skills and knowledge through non-executive board roles and really helping. And I bet those insights that you have and that your different way of looking at things and seeing things that perhaps others don't is something that uh, that your boards no doubt value highly. I hope so. I am, as a non-executive director with a legal background, I am really, really careful not to provide legal advice. And that's quite hard to do. <laughs> and it's also accepting that there is 10 different ways in which you can come to a solution. And each of those 10 ways are right. And just because your general counsel does it in a particular way, doesn't mean that that is the wrong way, even though it's not your way. And that has taken me a lot of restraint to accept. <laughs> but certainly, I think the, the one thing that I do use as a result of my legal training is to look at things from different angles. Mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important that you look at the case for, against, and maybe. And a lot of people don't do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is really, really helpful. Yeah, and also being planning for things and, and thinking further than just what's going to happen tomorrow. But, you know, if you go a particular way, what is the result going to be in five years, in 10 years? And, you know, how do you plan for that? Always looking forward. And yeah, the, the, the other thing also is a reliance, a non-reliance on yourself, because certainly as a commercial lawyer, you do rely on a lot of people to help the client. You know, you, you're constantly talking to the accountant, to that particular advisor for that particular project and the like, and all working together to come to a, a solution for the client. Uh, you don't work in, in isolation. And I find that smaller organizations do tend to work in isolation. And I think we are much stronger if we all work in partnership. And that's something I, I do try and encourage. And and how do you do that in your director role? How do you encourage that working together? Like, for example, in so in our, I sit on the board of a, a housing provider, an affordable housing provider, and we mustn't just be looking at how many houses we can put into the market. We need to be working with our stakeholders to see what their needs are, where their needs are. We need to be working with government to see, you know, what their policy is, not just this election cycle, 
all, but in the long term and mm. all working towards a common good. We provide the houses, but we need to make sure that what we're providing meets the needs. And we won't know that if we sit in isolation. You sit on a number of boards, Alice, and I, I'm imagining that you probably get or have been approached by some others that you might not have taken up. What is your thought process or selection process when you consider a board position? Are there certain attributes or values that you sort of use as guide rails to make a decision about whether or not to put yourself forward for a board position? Yeah, so sometimes it's really hard because you don't know, especially when it's government boards or large statutory authorities. But I, for me, it's always the chair because mm. I really believe in this concept of leadership and I like the chair not to be what I, the phrase I use is a cookie cutter chair. You know, I, I'm looking for, for leadership, someone with a passion for what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that is really, really important. And leadership, although to me, it should sit with the chair, sometimes it sits with the CEO, which is fine, but I want someone who knows where they're going. That's number one. Number two, I need to be convinced that where we're going is in accordance with our purpose. Because a lot of mm. times you do your strategy and the like, but you forget what your purpose was. And I, I think that is really, really important. We've um, had a, a bit of a discussion about what we still, most people tend to call the not-for-profit sector and not-for-profit organisations. Yeah. And and the more appropriate term being for-purpose organisations because those organisations can't not run for profit. They will cease to exist if they're not making money, but they're much more purpose-driven. Yeah, exactly. It's an important exactly. distinction, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And through my years, I've had people say to me that, oh, we're not for profit, we can't make money. And I've also had people who've said to me, oh, we are not for profit, we can't be keeping money. We need to spend everything we make, which is not right. And I think this calling it not for profit maybe has a genesis in how our companies are created. Mm-hmm. In the good old days, there would have been charities, wouldn't they? Yes. Yeah, you know, there would have been some sort of a trust. It's just like the race that I'm seeing more and more now. They're calling them NGOs, you know, non-governmental organisations. And I'm going, what is an NGO? I googled it. Um, and essentially, <laughs> it, it's a phrase that the genesis of it is in the United Nations Charter, which mm. says that, you know, the UN can work with non-government organisations because the UN works countries. And so that's what it is. And you think about, would you call the Heart Foundation a an NGO? I wouldn't mm-hmm. call it an NGO, I'll call it a charity, no. right? Yeah. Or a yeah. for-purpose organisation. Mm. But I, yeah, I, I think it's really important purpose. because it, even yeah. from a board perspective, as you say, if the attachment is around being a not-for-profit, obviously decisions, as you say, about where money should go and how much should be held and, and so mm. forth, that, you know, that becomes particularly relevant. But a, a different approach, being purpose-driven, it leads to different conclusions and different decision-making. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the other thing also is that when, when you talk about not-for-profit, people forget that you need money to be sustainable. And a lot of yeah. people don't understand that. They don't understand. A lot of people don't actually understand finance. And mm. it's for the accountant on the board to understand finance. And that is so, so wrong. Everyone needs to understand finance and everyone needs to understand what it means to be sustainable. 
people. I saw a strategic plan that said uh, one of the pillars is to be sustainable. And I go, what does that mean? What does being sustainable mean? They said, oh, it's to make a profit. And I go, okay, so if you've got $1 more than break even, you're sustainable. And they went, yes. And I go, okay, that's mm. not that's not what being sustainable is. And I think it varies from place to place. And I, I think building a nest egg is so, so important because you want to have money yourself that then you can do what you need to do to achieve your purpose rather than constantly applying for grants, which may not be in accordance with your purpose. So you're so right, particularly because there's a lot of instability in that for purpose sector. Lots of changes, aged care, disability services, just across the board, significant changes taking place. And without that nest egg, as you talk about, there's no buffer to be able to to ride out some difficult times. Yeah, and and I think the sector is also, there are lots and lots of organisations all doing more or less the same thing. Mm. There is no economy of scale at all. And I've often wondered why is it like, for example, you know, I sit on the National Board of the Heart Foundation and there is three or four small organisations that I know of that do what we do. And so I I wonder why is that? It's someone's pet project to, you know, raise money to do research into a particular thing, which we are already funding in the millions. Um, And I wonder whether there is a, a structure that could accommodate all these people. To give you another example, I sat on the board of a mental health charity called mm-hmm. the Fly Program. So it's the initial board of the Fly Program. Have a look at it. It's it's really, really interesting. And basically what it does is uh, it takes at that time when it started uh, groups of men into the mountains, fishing and mountain biking and giving them tools to be able to go through the, the tough periods. So we're not there to help people who are suffering a mental illness, but it's just to provide you with tools to help you cope. And my question was, why are we doing this? You know, why aren't we talking to Beyond Blue or all that sort of charities, mental health charities that do these things? And the answer was that's because they were not interested. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I wonder whether large organizations like that could provide some sort of service that would allow this group of people to do what they do, but also provide them with the governance assistance that they require and the back office things that each organization needs and and help them that way rather than creating lots of little things that are more or less the same. So that's a really interesting point, Alice. One of the themes that is uh, running through this series of WNA Trailblazers is business growth. And certainly in the for purpose or the charity sector, business growth doesn't always mean doing more and expanding, but it could be about collaborating partnerships, agreements, even mergers and acquisitions. And uh, that's obviously a big challenge for a lot of organisations. I think so, because an organisation, for-profit, not-for-profit or whatever, cannot function without understanding its finances. And Mm. the skills to do that is expensive. We could get, and and I've spoken to some of my friends in the big firms to see whether they could set up cloud-based back office to do this sort of thing. And it's um, it doesn't make them enough money, unfortunately. Mm. So maybe there's a social enterprise out there who would do 
do that. Finance, HR, governance a little bit. Well, if it exists, let us know. If it doesn't, yeah. we've just got a hot tip from Alice Tay about what's required <laughs> in a new business opportunity. Alice, uh, in terms of your personal career, I suppose, obviously you get great personal satisfaction out of these board roles and knowing that you're contributing to, to better outcomes. Yes. Mm. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I sit on like very boards and I've never noticed it till someone mentioned it to me. Like I couldn't tell you what is my specialty because I don't have one. You know, I sit on a, a board of a university, on a community bank, on a housing housing provider. Three, four, it sounds yeah. to me, Alice, like your specialty is exactly what you said. You come at things from more than one perspective. And really, that's probably something we can take into to business, to our personal lives even, and the great lessons that we can apply, particularly in relation to our business growth. Oh, absolutely. It's learning. And, and I used this example just recently about diversity and how, and I was talking to someone in industry. And if you look at industry boards, they all tend to be very insular. Like, you know, you have to be in the building industry to be on a building industry board of some sort. Mm, so mm. they don't actually have the outside people. They don't have the, what I call the stupid question people, like me, you know, <laughs> stupid question people. And I said, well, have, have a look at, you know, just have a look at the rugby clubs and have a look at the way they train. Look at the learnings Eddie Jones takes as he trains world championship teams. You know, he, he doesn't just look at other rugby clubs. You know, he looks at Pilates, he looks at ballet dancers, ballet, not ballet, ballet dancers. You know, all, all these sorts of things to take learnings from them because you do need to look at things slightly different. Thank you so much for sharing your learnings with us today. There's so much richness in your insights and uh, we look forward to speaking with you again, hopefully, on WNA Trailblazers. Thank you. Anytime, Cheryl. So Cheryl, now we've heard from Alice. Have you gained a different perspective from the conversation? Well, I want to speak to Alice again. I really want to know more. Mm. Um, and that's the great thing about these conversations is you get a, a terrific insight into, in Alice's case, her early years growing up in Malaysia and, you know, the decisions that her parents made about sending her to Australia, putting her into boarding school to finish and, you know, her then establishing a life here in Australia, a lengthy and successful legal career and then moving into a number of board roles and how she is very purpose-driven and I think, Louise, one of, again, one of the themes that mm. has come out through our discussions in this series is that purpose-driven, whether it was, you know, Kelly Martin in relation to her legal profession, whether it was Ronnie Benbow in her dedication to her not-for-profit and working for carers, and also, you know, Melissa Ma, who we spoke to a few episodes ago about our purpose and the conversations we need to have around mm. money and clarifying our purpose. Again, all interesting threads that run through these conversations with these incredible trailblazers. And it's a pleasure hearing their stories too. Perhaps if our listeners have someone that they'd like to hear, get in contact with us. What's the email address again? They can either email us through the contact page on our website, which is womensnetwork.com.au, or they can email admin at womensnetwork.com.au and that will reach us and we'd be pleased to hear any suggestions or thoughts on the podcast. And if they really love the podcast, we would love a, a an review. excellent rating. Some five stars. Yeah, yeah, five stars is good. Give us a five star. Give us a follow. Then 
you know, you're never going to miss an episode of Trailblazers and all these amazing women in business. Absolutely. Now, WNA Trailblazers will be taking a break for 2022, but we'll be back amplifying the stories of more amazing trailblazing women in business in the new year. Women's Network Australia is a business network for women that's been around for over 30 years. And like Women's Network Australia, Davies Chocolates has a proud history and a love of innovation. Davies Chocolates has been making handcrafted chocolates since 1932. And the chocolate making traditions of the past have been mixed with the needs of today. With all your favourites now made with delicious gluten-free and palm oil-free gourmet chocolate. Visit davieschocolates.com.au and order your selection online for speedy delivery to your door. Davies Chocolates are a proud sponsor of WNA Trailblazers. Thinking about making your own podcast? Welcome Change Media would love to help. Visit welcomechangemedia.com.au. WNA Trailblazers is a Welcome Change Media production.